You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What can we learn from the novel pilot programs in the prevention of type 2 diabetes? Joining us to discuss primary prevention of type 2 diabetes is Director of the Diabetes Translational Research Center in Indianapolis, Indiana, Dr. David Marrero. Dr. Marrero, welcome to ReachMD. I'm happy to be here. How have recent studies attempted to study programs for the prevention of type 2 diabetes? What we realized after the the first academic studies were done with primary prevention was that we can, in fact, do this with modest lifestyle interventions, ones that result in modest weight loss, 5 to 7%, and increases in physical activity. The problem was that the studies were all efficacy trials. They were designed to prove a point and to to prove the hypothesis that lifestyle changes could, in fact, reduce risk for diabetes in people that had increased risk factors. So what we have been doing here in, in the Indiana Diabetes Translational Research Center is trying to find ways to take very effective and potent intervention curricula and translate them into the public health, to put them into a frame where they were less expensive and more accessible to the broad, huge number of people out there that have risk for developing type 2 diabetes. That's a lot of folks. And of course, uh, these folks are at risk for coronary heart disease, the most common cause of death uh, for any American, let alone people with diabetes. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about your pilot program called Plan Forward, because there's lots of different pilot programs, but let's use yours as a platform to to talk about this in general and how can our listeners do things in their own community? Well, the Plan Forward program was an attempt to try to, as I said, reduce the cost of of interventions for, for people that need them and also to make it accessible and widely disseminated. So what we decided to do was form a partnership with a strong community partner that could help us to implement these types of curriculum, which by their nature are long-term and intense. So we took the, the program that was used in the Diabetes Prevention Program, a, a randomized trial that was conducted by the NIH, and we adapted it for delivery by YMCAs using YMCA staff, which we trained to deliver the intervention. Uh, by doing this, we can use a much less expensive person to deliver the program. Uh, in, in the science uh, and trials, it was nurses and, and physiologists and educators and people that were fairly expensive. We were able to accomplish the same outcomes as what they found in the DPP study, but to do this with YMCA staff who were trained by us, uh, achieving uh, 6 to 7% weight loss, which sustains for over a year uh, in follow-up. We also uh, learned that by putting it into the YMCA, we could really broaden the reach. There are over 2,600 YMCA facilities in the country today, and they reach probably 10 to 12,000 uh, neighborhoods. Uh, they're, they're almost in every, in fact, they are in every state. They are in urban and rural settings. They're, they're widely distributed, so they really have a promising opportunity to let us scale up an intervention that can be widely adapted and widely disseminated across the United States. Well, Dave, give our listeners just a brief overview of what we did in the diabetes prevention program and what 
your focused counselors do at the YMCA? What we did in the diabetes prevention program was to have people do a, uh, a lifestyle modification program with two simple goals. One was to get people to lose approximately 7% of their body weight, and this was done by teaching people how to eat a lower-fat diet and to do uh, portion and calorie control, to eat just smaller amounts of food. As you know, in this country, we tend to eat larger and larger amounts and supersize everything. So we taught people how to do that and the techniques for doing that, for monitoring their intake, for calculating fat grams, for sort of making adjustments. We also taught them how to deal with social factors and, and social issues that tend to cause people to deviate from a more healthy diet or a, a diet that helps them to regulate and maintain a, a better weight. What we did in the DPP, though, is we did this one-on-one. Wouldn't you love to have your own personal coach to help you with this? That's what we did, 16 weeks of of curricula, 16 sessions. Well, in the Y Project, we converted that to a group format. We decided it was simply not feasible to do this one-on-one. Is that what you call a focus counselor, Dave? Yeah, I would call that a focus counselor. And uh, we also call them lifestyle coaches. And these people use the exact same curriculum that was used in the DPP. We teach the same skills, the same monitoring skills, the same social pressure, uh, and, and stimulus cue skills. We, we also use and have the advantage of the group because it adds a certain degree of a social uh, network for people. People become uh, embedded into these groups. They become enmeshed with the other people. They're with people from their communities that live where they live and have the same kinds of problems, the same kinds of issues with diet and weight that they have. And so we use that component of the group and the dynamic of the group to help also facilitate changes in, in behavior that are health, you know, risk reduction, you know, providing. Well, that, that makes so much sense. I mean, you, when you talk to people of a certain ethnic group in a community, you can't have someone that is, doesn't understand their ethnic and cultural backgrounds. It's just you're just not going to get anywhere. Well, give us an idea of what a stimulus cue skill is. Give us a couple examples. Well, a good example is we will often ask people to say, okay, what are situations where you find that you eat things that are really not the best dietary, you know, thing for you to, you to consume? So we would teach people to, to start thinking and becoming mindful of where are these opportunities going to be and what are the kinds of things that they could do to help them regulate the kind of in, intake they're going to have at the party. And we get the group to sort of group think this. And so a lot of ideas will come up, uh, eating before you go to the party, uh, making sure that your part of the pitch-in is a lower-calorie snack or something that you like that, in fact, would be more agreeable, or deciding to do more portion control consciousness, where instead of filling up your plate and going back and, you know, continually grazing, to get a smaller plate, to take a small amount, and then, you know, separate yourself from the buffet you know, and, 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 and engage in more social dynamics. And that's just one example. There are hundreds of these that the groups, in fact, develop and identify the things that stimulate them to cause them to eat and the kinds of strategies that may work to help them resist that temptation. Well, that's a great example, uh, and I took close notes. Hey, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. David Marrero. We are discussing primary prevention of type 2 diabetes. Dave, what are the implications uh, to clinical care, specifically as they relate to the primary care physician? You know, physicians may not be involved in your program or have access. What do you recommend? Well, one of the things in the study that we did, Steve, was that we also, as a control condition, as a comparison condition, 
we actually gave people materials that we got from the National Diabetes Education Program. Which are free. Which are free. And this was a, a package that was put together called the Small Steps, Big Rewards, the Game Plan, plan for Preventing Type 2 Diabetes. And these materials not only explain what risk is and, and, and how one can modify the risk, but provide simple tools to help the person self-initiate dietary monitoring and to increase their physical activity. And what we learned in our study is that with very brief counseling, when we identified a person at risk, we did a metabolic test and said, you know, your blood sugar is a little higher than it should be. You have prediabetes. With no more than 10 minutes of counseling, we were still able to get this group to lose about 2% of their body weight and keep that weight off for over a year. You must have scared the heck out of them in those two minutes. <laughs> not, not at all. I think, I think a lot of people uh, who have risk for diabetes also have a family history of it. Mm-hmm. Almost 70% of the people that participate in primary prevention studies will have a first-degree relative that is literally taken it on the chin because of diabetes. And I think most people are aware that they have this possibility, and they really are motivated to avoid it. So what I would say to primary care physicians is that by doing counseling, focused counseling, by identifying and making a person aware of their risk, and this can be done by a simple metabolic test, a, a casual glucose, an A1C, uh, a fasting glucose. By making somebody aware in a quantifiable manner that they have high risk and providing them with simple tools that they can do on their own, but encouraging them to take action, to lose a modest amount of weight, we're talking 5 to 7%, 12, maybe 15 pounds tops in a big person, this can have a significant impact. A 2% weight loss is about a 30% reduction in diabetes risk. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the Diabetes Prevention Program, we asked folks to get lose 7% of their body weight, but they didn't lose quite that much at all, and they still had big benefits. Uh, Dave, uh, I have two quick follow-up questions. You mentioned uh, uh, a test, the A1C. We know now that the A1C may be used for the diagnosis of diabetes. Maybe you can say a few words about that. Obviously, the A1C is an easy test for most providers to do. There's a lot of point-of-care technology out there that's very accurate. And there is now uh, has been a, a panel that's convened itself and said that really we should think about using the A1C as a diagnostic tool to, to define people who have diabetes. And the argument there is an A1C of 6.5% or greater would be a diagnosis of diabetes. Now, this hasn't been fully embraced by the entire medical community, but I think it's something that's going to happen here pretty soon. It also suggests that somebody who has an A1C between 5.6 and about 6.4 is probably a high-risk candidate, probably a person that we would now call pre-diabetic somebody that would have impaired glucose tolerance or impaired or elevated fasting glucose. That's a good number to remember for our listeners. Uh, anything 5.6 and above, you should be thinking that these, these folks may be at risk for diabetes. Just real quickly, how do people get this information that you mentioned that come from uh, our government program, the small steps? I think if anybody went on, online and Googled the National Diabetes Education Program, they would see a host of materials that are very specific for uh, primary prevention of diabetes, and some of them are designed for primary care providers and physicians, and will help them to implement very simple counseling kinds of programs, which will have, I think, the same effect that we've had with smoking. You know, primary care physicians did a huge benefit to, to smoking by just adopting the, the, the mantra of telling people you need to quit and can I help you? Is there something I can do to assist that? And we know that that's been effective in reducing smoking rates. And I suggest we could do the same thing with primary prevention in people at high risk. 
You know, Dave, just the way you said it, I think is a good uh, uh, teachable moment. You know, you're not getting down on people. Can, you said, can I help you? Uh, and I think uh, that's so important. Well, Dave, we're coming to the end. Tell us uh, how your pilot program can be implemented into public health. Well, right now, there's actually some exciting news to share with you all. Uh, the program that we have done here at Indiana has been very uh, successful. We've now disseminated it to across approximately seven states now. We have hundreds of, of YMCAs uh, online doing this, and, and we are hoping to go national with this and have this become part of a national Y initiative to, to set up programs and Ys all over the country. It's also become a model for legislation that's being proposed as part of the health care packaging. Uh, just recently, Senator uh, Luger and Senator um, Frank, uh, Franken, Al Franken, have co-sponsored a bill to promote the development of community-based centers like the Y, and it doesn't have to be a Y, it could be any place that's successful in the community, to actually start to develop these kinds of programs and to bring them into the broader public health. I'd like to thank our guest, Director of the Diabetes Translational Research Center in Indianapolis, Indiana, Dr. David Moreau. Dr. Moreau, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.